0: Lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat. the reading of his word for his name's sake. We come here to one of the most foundational chapters of all the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. It reveals to us the fall of man and to a great degree why the world is the way it is today. Here we have The text that I want to focus on, Genesis 3.15, there is much here uh, for us to meditate on and to study, to try and understand, but I want us to focus particularly on Genesis 3.15. We have what is commonly known as the Proto-Evangelium, which is just a technical way of saying the first anticipation or announcement of the gospel. That is Genesis 3.15. It is the first announcement of the gospel. We find here a most gracious promise, a most gracious God, giving a promise of salvation to a sinful and fallen humanity. This promise comes immediately following our rebellion from and rejection of His merciful rule over us. In Romans 5.12 we read, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That text gives us explicitly that we have all sinned in Adam. That it was not only a rebellion of two people, but of the entire human race against the God who had made them. We as men and women are fallen... And except God saw fit to extend His grace to any of us, we would all perish for all eternity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is man's one and only hope for salvation from sin, eternal life, and peace with God. I want us to consider this text today as a glimpse of life in the face of death. And that is what I have entitled this message, A Glimpse of Life. In the face of death. It is essentially the gospel in seed form. Genesis 3.15 does not reveal everything that we know uh, from the rest of the Bible. But it does reveal the gospel in simplicity and key aspects of God's plan of redemption. The Puritan John Owen said, It would not be hard to show that all of our soteriology our doctrine concerning the Savior and Mediator and His appointed work, along with justification by grace, evangelical repentance, eternal rewards, and the resurrection of the body is all embraced, however obscurely, in the heads which I have enumerated above, our out of this first promise. Now, I'm not going to focus on everything that we could say concerning this text, or we would be here uh, until next Sunday. But I would like to focus our attention uh, on three things that we find here in this chapter of Genesis. Uh, the, problem, the problem, the promise, and the plan. The problem, the promise, and the plan. We want to see in the promises what Genesis 3:15 and the preceding verses reveal to us concerning the certainty or I'm sorry the concerning the extent of man's need of redemption concerning the extent of man's need of redemption. So we read the context we see that man has now fallen. We see that the serpent beguiled Eve that she sinned and then her husband with her did sin. We see the effects of the fall immediately. We see in verse 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. A pathetic attempt to cover up the guilt that they now felt. We see that there was immediately a hesitancy, a clear running away from the presence of God. We see that in verse 8. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And just in passing on these comments, we see this is now the position of every human being born into this world. That there is no desire for fellowship with God. That there is an antithesis between God and man. Unclean Perfectly holy. And men and women. From the time of their birth. Though they may create false gods. And idols. They fashion them after themselves. And so therefore they cling to them. But the one true and living God. Man wants nothing to do with. Now in the state of sin and death. But we see the effects immediately. From this fall of man. But. What we want to see particularly is man's need of redemption. Man is in need of redemption. That is what is revealed to us. Man is in need of redemption. (coughs) For Adam is guilty now before God and he hides from God. He knows that he's not fit to be in the presence of God. Which is why they seek to hide themselves. They feel the guilt of what they've done. They know that they've disobeyed God. So we see man is in need of redemption. The promise follows the fall of man. And the promise is made as a result of the fall of man. This promise in Genesis 3.15 displays for us the grace of our God. Because he immediately comes after the fall of man when they deserve nothing but wrath and punishment. When they deserve nothing but to be cast out with no hope of salvation ever. And he comes and gives a most gracious promise of redemption. He comes and gives the gospel. So we see man is in need of redemption. We see that man is unable to redeem himself. And this is all a part of the problem that man is in need of redemption and man is unable to redeem himself. You see that Adam and Eve tried to sew fig leaves together to cover up their own guilt, but it didn't matter because once they came into the presence of God, there was the immediate, again, everything's uncovered, everything's out in the open. They have disobeyed, and the Lord knows it, and they feel their guilt. Adam had failed to obey God and was now dependent upon the obedience of another. That is revealed to us in Genesis 3.15 because he says... Now, another one's going to come. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, we read this obviously in light of all of Scripture. But even if we were just focusing on this text and we were receiving it as it is given to Adam and Eve, with no other commentary or anything like that it is obvious that in light of adam's failure now they are dependent on the victory of another adam had failed so now he's dependent on the obedience of another adam had failed to defeat the serpent and was now dependent on the victory of another so we see revealed in genesis 3:15 that man is now going to be dependent upon the obedience of another and upon the defeat of Satan by another because the first Adam has failed. So we see the problem clearly is that man is in need of redemption and unable to redeem himself. Now we want to look particularly at the promise, the promise as it is given to us. And what it reveals to us concerning the certainty of man's redemption. The certainty of man's redemption. First it reveals to us that man's redemption is promised by God. Is promised by God. You see the statement, I will, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt Bruce's his heel very definite statements certain statements because they're promised by god the implication therefore since god has promised them the redemption is guaranteed to come to pass because if god makes a promise he holds true to the promise and he fulfills his promises he makes no false promises like we do He doesn't make a promise, and then He's not able to keep it like we do. So the implication, God has promised, I will and it shall. Therefore, it is going to come to pass, the certainty. And just on a side note, as we come to Genesis 4, we see how certain this promise is. If you look at Genesis 4, We see verse 1, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now it is not looking too much into that text and reading too much into that text to understand that Eve, as she bears her first son, is remembering the promise that God has made that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And you see in her statement, I have gotten a man from the Lord. There's a trust that the Lord is fulfilling His promise. Now, she's wrong in her assumption that it is this man, because obviously we know Cain is not going to be the Savior, and he's actually going to be a seed of the serpent. He's actually going to be one of the devil's seed. But the fact of the matter is, it shows the certainty of the promise because Eve is looking for the Lord to fulfill his promise. And so we see as it goes down to Abel that he's also looking forward to that promise. And we go to Hebrews 11 and we read by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. And so he's looking forward by faith. Eve is looking forward by faith, most likely Adam as well, looking forward by faith to the coming Savior and experience. They experience, because of their looking forward in this trusting of the promise of God for salvation, they experience all the benefits of salvation by grace through faith. They look to God to accomplish their redemption. And they trust that He's going to bring it to pass. Man's redemption is promised by God, therefore it is certain. What is also certain is that man's redemption will bring glory to God. Man's redemption will bring glory to God. This is again implied in the text. I will, it shall, and thou shalt. There's a showing that these things are going to come to pass. There is no thwarting this plan of God. There is no thwarting of this Redemption that God has foreordained. And as these things will be fulfilled, God will be glorified. Because as God decrees, as God promises, as God obligates Himself to perform certain things, as they come to pass, glory is brought to God. That is implied in the text. And even if we... To the praise of the glory of His grace. That is all wrapped up in this text. It's implicit that God is going to perform this. And then thereby He's going to bring glory to Himself. So, we see the problem. We see the promise. And now, I'd like to spend a lot of time on the plan. The plan. The plan that is revealed here very interesting to come to this text and to try and see all that is really being said here. All that is implied and all that is explicitly stated. And so as we look at the plan, we want to see what Genesis 3.15 reveals to us concerning the plan of man's redemption. First, we see that there are opposing forces. There are opposing forces. I will put enmity between thee and Satan, the serpent, and the woman. Between thee and the woman. So we have the woman. Well, who is the woman? Well, literally it's Eve. Literally it is Eve. And there will be now a change in the relationship that that she has had with the serpent. We see before in the beginning of the chapter that there was somewhat of a friendliness. that That the serpent was able to come and to speak with Adam and Eve with no animosity between them, but he was able to actually come and beguile her and deceive her and lie to her about God without her just simply turning away and resisting the temptation to listen. There's a friendliness. Well, the Lord says he's going to change that. I am going to put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. So there are opposing forces. The woman, literally Eve, but reverentially It is mankind. There's quite literally an animosity toward mankind and toward toward creatures of the earth, particularly the serpent. Now, it's not universal. There are some people who don't mind snakes. But most of us don't particularly like to stumble upon a deadly viper that could bite us and kill us in a matter of minutes. But there is an animosity in general. But we see the woman's literally eve... And referentially, it's mankind. But we see the serpent. Who is the serpent? Literally, it is a serpent. There's actually some people who would say that it's just a representation. That it's just a vision, as it were, that Eve is having. That it's not real. But we understand that Genesis is literal history. And that it is a literal serpent being used by Satan... And that's not hard to understand. We read later in the Bible of the Lord speaking to the prophet, the false prophet Balaam through his donkey as it were. And so it's not hard to see that the Lord that Satan could use a serpent to speak to the woman. And then in Revelation 12:9 we read where Satan is called this serpent. Revelation 12:9 and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the serpent is most definitely Satan. But reverentially, it's the kingdom of darkness. The entire host of spiritual wickedness represented by Satan as the kingdom, as the king of the kingdom of darkness. So, there are opposing forces in this plan of redemption. There will be two types of offspring. There will be two types of offspring in this plan of redemption. There will be the seed of the woman and there will be the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman, there is a twofold aspect to this seed of the woman. Collectively, it's God's people. Collectively, it is God's people. We find that. Both seeds are going to come physically from the woman. And we read in chapter 4, as we've already looked at, that Abel and Cain both came from Eve. And yet one is of God's people. One is of the kingdom of darkness. So we find it there. But we also read in Romans 16.20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So the Lord speaks to His church, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans. And He says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet, under our feet. And it is by the gospel of Jesus Christ and our walking in our union with Christ that the serpent is defeated under our feet. It is in that sense. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. So we see collectively the seed of the woman is God's people. But specifically we know that it is Jesus Christ. Specifically the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.4 4, But when the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth his son. Made of a woman. Made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So specifically, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that is promised here. Though it may not have been completely understood at that time, we know that as the story goes through the plan of redemption, that there are types and there are men who come, who people think it may be, and then they fail. And obviously, they're not the Messiah. And as it is ultimately brought to pass it comes that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the ultimate seed of a woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent but now we see the seed of the serpent the seed of the serpent is Satan's spiritual offspring Satan's spiritual offspring in Matthew 3.7 we had John the Baptist interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what does he call them? You brood of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Significant that he calls them a brood of vipers. He could have called them another name, but he calls them a brood of vipers because of their relation to the kingdom of darkness. And if that is not enough for us, then we read in John chapter 8 and verse 59, I believe. 40, 44, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. So if it were not enough for us, from John the Baptist's statement, the Lord Jesus Christ, in John eight forty-four explicitly calls the Pharisees, Children of the devil. Ye are of your father the devil. And the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. There's also a reference to Cain in that. Showing that he was indeed a child of the devil. For Satan was working in him. When he murdered Cain. When he murdered Abel. So we see. The seed of the serpent is Satan's spiritual offspring. So there will be opposing forces. Opposing forces. There will be two types of offspring. There will be one Redeemer. There will be one Redeemer. We read, Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And as it goes on, the covenant is further developed with Abraham and the promise is made to his seed again and then we go to Galatians 3:16 and we find out that it was not made to seeds as of many but to thy seed which is Christ Galatians 3:16 to thy seed speaking of Abraham's seed which is Christ the singular seed so we see that there will be one redeemer we see that he will be of our nature that it will be another man that comes so, we see here a reference to the humanity that will be a part of this Redeemer. He will be of our nature and he will be attacked by the serpent. Those are two sure things that we find here. He will be of our nature and he will be attacked by the serpent. There will be victory, there will be opposing forces, there will be two types of offspring, there will be one Redeemer. And there will be victory. A crushed head. Or a bruised head as it appears in our text before us. It shall bruise thy head. Really we could say crush. It shall crush thy head. How will this crushing take place? That, that would be a question to... To bring as we read this text, how will the crushing take place? Chiefly it will take place by the cross, subsequently by the church, and ultimately at the last judgment. But if you'll turn with me to a couple of passages, I want us to see the victory taking place chiefly by the cross, if you'll turn to John 12:31, John's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 31. Chapter 12, verse 31. The Lord Jesus, speaking of the coming time of the crucifixion, He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now if you'll turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. In verse 9, we read in Revelation twelve nine, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death, speaking of the martyrs, of the faith. But the similar language between John 12.31 and Revelation 12.10, that he was cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Obviously, as a result of the cross, he is cast down. Down. Then Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, we read, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. "...which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it." Triumphing over them in it. By his cross, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. And finally, if those texts weren't explicit enough... We have in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We read verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, speaking of Christ, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, that is the devil, and this is significant because this victory is going to be chiefly by the cross. Chiefly by the cross, there would be some who think that Satan planned the cross; that Satan's attack, his greatest attack on Christ, was the cross. But if we look at the testimony of Scripture, it would seem fairly certain. That the cross was the means of destroying the serpent. The cross was the means of accomplishing the victory. And Satan is not such a fool that he wouldn't be able to see. That Christ was going to crush his head. Through his own death. But subsequently by the church. That victory will be accomplished. We've already read Romans 16.20. That the God of peace will crush the serpent under the feet of his people. But ultimately, at the last judgment, this will take place. In Revelation 20.10, we read of the serpent being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. The final destruction of the serpent. The final devastation to the kingdom of darkness. Afterwards, the kingdom of light will be all there is. So, finally, there will be utter defeat There will be utter defeat. There are opposing forces. Two types of offspring. One redeemer. There will be victory. And there will be utter defeat. The bruised heel or the crushed heel. As I said some will take this. As a reference to Satan. Bringing about the crucifixion of Christ. And they may be right but i think it's more accurate in the light of scripture to see that here is meant a contrast between the victory of christ and the defeat of satan satan got no victory over christ for the crucifixion was ultimately the plan of god we read in acts two twenty three that it was predetermined by god it was foreordained that christ should give his life a ransom for many Even if the cross is alluded to here, in the wisdom of God, it was Satan bringing about his own demise by the cross. But in light of the passages we just read, this is hard to imagine. As we read in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, of him bringing about victory through his own death. And that he knew that, and that it was obvious Especially in the light of the fact that of Satan's craftiness and wisdom, it would be hard that he would not see what was coming. It would seem that his mission was to stop Christ from getting to the cross. If we look at the biblical data, we see that there's a constant attempt to pollute the line, the messianic line. There's a constant attempt from opposing forces within the nation of Israel up to the time of Christ. There's a constant effort. To pollute the messianic line. Because just like Adam and Eve were looking forward to God fulfilling this promise. Satan knew the promise was that the seed of the woman was going to crush his own head. So he knows that. So he knows that through this seed is going to come the redeemer. And so he seeks to pollute the seed. So we see the constant attempt to pollute the messianic line. We see Herod's attempt to kill the children under two. In Matthew chapter 2, we read of the attempt to slay all the children under two. And we know that that was Satan working through Herod to try and wipe out all the children to take out Messiah. We also see the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4. Satan trying to come at Christ however he can to try and bring him down. To try and get him to fail as the first Adam did. But we see that Christ responds the way that we wished Adam and Eve would have responded with the Word of God and how we all want to respond when Satan comes with those temptations. But the fact that he was constantly trying this through the polluting of the line, through the temptation, through Herod, and then even through the crowds trying to stone Christ when he would speak truth And it would infuriate the unbelievers and the Pharisees. And the crowds would try to take up stones to destroy Him. We read of this in John 8 and several other places. And then even the attack on Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right at the crux. Right when He is about to go to the cross. We read in Luke chapter 22 of Christ's sweat being as drops of blood. Because of the suffering so intense. The attack of Satan so intense. Why? If Satan's intention is to take him to the cross. Then why is he trying this whole time. To take him out before he gets to the cross. So I say it would it would appear in light of scripture. That this is not really a reference to Satan's. Trying to crucify Christ. But of a pathetic attempt. By the enemy of God. The enemy of man. To try and thwart. The plan of God. A pathetic attempt. Because he was constantly trying. And yet. It was all futile. Because God's plans. And God's purposes. Cannot be thwarted. By anyone or anything. Anything because He is God and sovereign over all. So we see the problem, the promise, and the plan. To conclude, in light of the analogy of faith, the reading of the Scriptures in light of this passage, we see that the first mention of the Gospel here is stuffed Absolutely stuffed with truth that is further developed throughout the progressive revelation of God's word. This is a key text for our interpretation of the whole Old Testament. It shows us what the intention was all along. From this very point. We know that this, whatever comes after this, is leading to the fulfillment of this. We could even say our Bible is generally divided up or is commonly divided up Old Testament, New Testament. That's how we think of it. But there is a sense in which you can divide it up Genesis 1 to the end of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation Because Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 is the creation and we have a perfect world. We have a perfect creation free from sin. And then Genesis 3 on is the fall, is corruption, is devastation, destruction, but also redemption and the plan of God flowing from there. There is debate, obviously, from some people that whether the Old Testament is for us today. But of course it is. Of course it is. We must understand that the Old Testament is not, in one sense, Jewish. Some would say that it is. It's not, in one sense, Jewish, but it is Christian. It's Christian. Why do we say that? Well, we say that because... This is pointing to Christ. This is pointing to Christ. It's not the religion of the Old Testament. It's not what we find in the Gospels with the Pharisees. It was never that. But it was always Christianity. It was always pointing to Christ. So that when we come to the Levitical laws, when we come to the sacrifices being instituted, when we come to those lists of genealogies, We read them in light of Genesis 3.15. And we trust whether they understood or not. What they should have understood. Was that these things were never an end in and of themselves. Sacrifices of animals were never going to save anyone. But they were all meant to point. To the way that the seed of the woman was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And so we read in light of that. The teaching of the Scriptures has always been Christianity. In seed form, yes. But Christianity still. But even more than all of that, though this text helps us in our reading of the Old Testament, that it guides us through, we see here this promise that it is most of all a humbling display of the grace of Almighty God to poor and wretched sinners who deserve nothing but utter annihilation from His presence. From His benevolent presence. This promise is truly a glimpse of life in the face of death. Adam and Eve had been told in the day that you eat of it, thou shalt surely die. Dying thou shalt die. It's certain. And they believed the lie of Satan that they would not surely die in direct contradiction to God. And yet in the face of death, God comes and promises life. And He does that for sinners. Sinners. When he is under no obligation to. As it was a glimpse of life in the face of death. For Adam and Eve. Even so it should be for us now. As we read it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly said. The gospel begins not in Matthew one, But in Genesis 3.15. Let us never forget that. And so let us go to our Old Testament and look for the Gospel." We are all born in the state of sin and death. But praise be to God. Praise be to God who has promised sinners life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come humbly before Thee so thankful that in the face of death Thou hast promised life. That though all our sins be held against us, though the accuser come and rightfully accuse us of every wicked deed we've done, we thank Thee that Thou hast paid the debt of them all. That they are all under the blood of Jesus Christ. For every child of God, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can come to Thee knowing we are forgiven, justified, and adopted into Thy family. Lord, we do confess our sin afresh. We do confess that we sinned in Adam. We do confess... Lord, that we have broken thy commandments, that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Lord, that we are murderers at heart, that we are adulterers at heart, that we are idolaters, that we are liars. We confess these things before thee, Lord, and thank thee that thou hast forgiven us and hast changed us and has Made Thy law no longer a terror to us, but a delight to us. We thank Thee that Thou hast given us power to live by Thy precepts. We thank Thee for what Thou hast revealed to us in this promise of life in the face of death. We thank Thee that we've been enabled to come here and to meet Together and to worship thee and to praise thee for the glorious redemption that thou hast wrought. We're thankful, Lord, that we have one ascended to thy right hand who has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who was tempted in all ways, like as we are, yet without sin. We thank thee, Lord, that we can rejoice in this today. And we pray as we leave this place that Thou will depart us with Thy blessing and that Thou would further bless our meditation upon Thy great promise of salvation in this very beginning of the book of God. So be with us, Lord, throughout our day. Govern our conversation. Help it to be on Christ. Help our minds to be fixed upon Him And help us to give ourselves over to Thee in thought, in word, and in deed. We pray and ask for Jesus' sake, for His honor and for His glory. Give Him the increase, Father, and may we have the decrease. Amen.